In the wake of COVID-19 lockdowns, travel restrictions, global economic and cultural turmoil, and increasing hostility toward Christianity, it might be easy for the average Christian to take a defensive posture and forget that the Church of Jesus Christ has been given a great commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We should ask ourselves, where is our theology taking us? Our Savior, now ruling in the midst of his enemies, said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Therefore, true churches of Jesus Christ should at all times devote themselves to the cause of advancing his kingdom through missions and church planting. But how should these things be done? We stand amidst the wreckage of a century full of the spread of evangelical pragmatism and false doctrines which were often championed by armies of churchless pioneer missionaries and parachurch organizations. As a Reformed Baptist, we desire to return to simple obedience to Jesus Christ in the Word of God. Christians must seek to accomplish the Great Commission in the way that He commanded. Local churches must lead the way. We hope you can join us for the first annual Covenant Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, taking place on March 17th through the 19th, 2022. We will hear from Paul Washer, Tom Nettles, Sam Waldron, and John Miller, who will encourage us both to think biblically about the practice of missions and church planning and to commit ourselves afresh to these vital responsibilities given to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. To learn more or register today, visit covcon.org. That's covcon.org. You are listening to Preaching and Teaching on the Man of God Network of Podcasts. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. But let's go to a second point here. It's prerequisite. What is the prerequisite for making such a defense? Well, the verse begins with the words, sanctify, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. There is a necessary prerequisite if one is to boldly defend Christianity in the face of persecution. One must resist being being intimidated by the persecutor. Verse 14b speaks of that persecutor. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. The words are lifted out of Isaiah 8. The question, however, which must be answered is, how am I to do this? Verse 15a provides the answer in the words, sanctify Christ as Lord. How are we to avoid having our mouths shut by fear of persecution in one form or the other, at one level or the other? The words sanctify Christ as Lord are the, are, are the solution. The Apostle Peter is alluding to Isaiah 8, 12 and following. And look at Isaiah 8. This is really interesting. Isaiah 8, 12 and following. Very interesting passage of Scripture and very interesting as it's compared to our passage. You are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. So the Bible warns us against being conspiracy theorists. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary, 
All right. So now that's the Old Testament context of this of I, I of First Peter three fourteen. It's in that context that Peter now comes on to say, and this too is rooted in Isaiah eight. But sanctify Christ as Lord. Now you notice that that is a paraphrase of the beginning of verse thirteen. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. Literally the Hebrew but sanctify the Lord of hosts, regard him as holy. Now, the apostle Peter then is alluding to Isaiah 8, 12 and following. We are to set apart Jehovah. We are to exalt him. He is holy, the separate one, separate from us in his purity and in his transcendence. We are to regard him as such so that in fearing him, we no longer fear men, and he becomes a sanctuary for us. So uh, as his fear dwells in our heart, it drives out uh, the fear of puny men in light of our fear of the great God. He is to be our fear and our faith. Now, there is a textual variant in 1 Peter 3.15 but the probable reading is that of given in the NIV and the New American Standard Version, sanctify Christ as Lord. In other words, Peter regards Christ as the Lord of hosts mentioned in Isaiah 8.13, where Isaiah says you are to regard Jehovah as your fear, you are to sanctify Jehovah Peter interprets sanctify Christ as Jehovah in your hearts. So we are to regard Christ as the Holy One, set him apart as our Lord and God, fear and trust him as the Supreme Lord. We are to fix our hope in Christ as God over all, and in doing this, cease to fear men and be emboldened to defend the faith. Now, before I comment on the apologetic implications of that, here's the interesting thing. This is the case where the modern translations have a more clear uh, evidence and support for the deity of Christ than the King James Version does. You know why I say that, because the claim is often made that the modern versions are soft on the deity of Christ. Well, in this passage, the modern versions have a clear uh, uh support for Christ being Jehovah, which is absent from the King James Version. But having said that, we come to our second observation. The last one we'll get to tonight with regard to apologetics. The standpoint or starting point of the Christian's defense of Christianity is to be that of faith. Full confidence in the truthfulness of Christianity must be the fundamental presupposition of his defense. This is implied both by the admonition to sanctify Christ as Lord and thus be always ready, and also by the fact that it is the hope in us that we are defending. We don't uh, take a posture of neutrality to Christ and neutrality to our hope in order to become neutrally objective in order to uh, make a rational defense of our faith. No. Raymond says, the text assumes a heart stance of faith, the hope that is in you. On the one hand, a self-conscious commitment on the part of the Christian. On the other, the recognition of this commitment on the part of the unbeliever who is asking a reason for the Christian's hope. 
The implication of this is that we do not momentarily suspend our faith in Christianity when we come to defend it and adopt a position of so-called unbiased neutrality in which we try to be open-minded or impartial about whether Christianity is true. Rather, our defense must grow out of our faith and hope and be built on the truth of the Word of God. The charge that will be immediately made against such a methodology is that it is circular reasoning. Uh, are we not assuming at the outset what we need to prove? Well, this is a good answer to this charge, uh, and I will give it in the course of this class. But for the moment, it is sufficient to note that the Bible calls on us to believe in Christ, always believe in Christ, ever believe in Christ, in every situation to believe in Christ, in every circumstance, in the intellectual context, to believe in Christ. In regards everything short of believing in Christ, not as neutral objectivity or fair-mindedness, but as wicked unbelief. Well, then we came in the third place to its preparation. Always, says Peter, being ready to make a defense, as as he's translated in the New American Standard. The first thing we see here with regard to preparation is the necessity of preparations. The word translated ready means both ready and prepared. Literally, the original reads, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, ready or prepared ones always for defense. Now, maybe it'd be good to look at a text or two with regard to the meaning of this term ready or prepared. Look at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 4, where the noun is also used. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, this with regard to the marriage feast, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner my oxen and my fat and livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. There had been preparations, and everything was ready. Verse 8, then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. And he goes on to tell uh, the how uh, the, uh, those in the high, on the highways and those outside of those that were already invited, the original invitees are no doubt the Jewish nation. Those they go out to bring in are no doubt the Gentiles. And then there's even interesting teaching here about the visible church of Christ and the danger of assuming that you are ready for the feast because you are part of the visible church of Christ. But John Brown says, with regard to this word, to be ready then is to be prepared when called on to state and defend the Christian hope. And the necessity of such preparations is confirmed by the courtroom analogy which Peter uses. A lawyer does not rise to defend his case in court without thorough preparation, and so too Christians ought not to be caught unprepared to defend their hope. But that brings us to the nature of these preparations. What are the nature, what is the nature of the preparations we are called on to make? How are we to prepare? And it's clear, I think, from the text that our preparations are to be both spiritual and intellectual. They are to be spiritual, 
The admonition to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts informs us that our preparation should be spiritual preparations. We should make sure that by uh, every use of the means of grace that is available to us, both weekly and daily, that we are setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts, that we are by prayer daily and by weekly worship enshrining Christ in the place of dominance in our hearts. And so by exalting and setting apart a Christ as holy in our hearts and minds, by regarding him as the holy incarnate God, we should bolster and maintain a believing and reverent frame of mind. And this is the frame of mind out of which any proper defense will have to come. But then the preparations must also be intellectual. Uh, Preparations uh, must be, given the courtroom analogy, which Peter carries through in the words apologia, legal defense, itao, legal inquiry, and logon, legal ground, these uh, preparations point us to the need, this legal connotation of those words, those courtroom words, point us to the need for intellectual preparations. The term logon means a recent statement implies the need for intellectual preparations. Christians must be able to give a formal, that is, reasonable defense of their faith. This demands some form of intellectual preparation. A defense of our hope, then, must include two elements. We must be able first to state our hope. Therefore, we must understand what it is and how it is, our hope. Second, we must be able to defend our having hope in it or the hope which is in us. In other words, we must understand what our hope is, we must understand how to defend our hope. This is our duty as believers, even young, suffering believers. And that brings us to a third observation with regard to apologetics. Being prepared and thus making preparations of both a spiritual and intellectual nature to give a reasonable defense of our faith is every Christian's duty, therefore especially a Christian teacher's duty, and therefore especially a Christian pastor's duty. And this is why apologetics must be a normative part of of any uh, thorough theological curriculum. But we come in the fourth place to the occasion, the occasion of Peter speaks of the occasion in these words to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. To everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Now, several comments are appropriate here. The first thing that's fairly evident, I think, is that Peter assumes that the hope in us will become visible in the way we live and that people will therefore ask us about it. The second thing that secondly, it is our duty to always be ready to answer everyone who asks. Raymond says the command expressly Paul calls upon every believer to be ready upon every occasion to give everyone who asks the reason for his faith commitment. If we do not do this, then uh, we sin because this is a command. You must be ready to give a response, a defense. And if you aren't ready, that is sin. But we have to qualify that, or maybe not qualify it, but say something else that I think is important. It is not necessarily our duty, actually, to answer everyone who asks. 
I think it's normally our duty. But this is no command to respond to the baiting of mockers. Uh, Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Uh, The one who answers a scoffer gets wounds for himself, Proverbs 9, 7 to 9. Uh, Don't cast your pearls before swine, Matthew 7, 6. Those who are only seeking an opportunity to ridicule and make light of holy things should have only the answer of silence. Uh, And so on some occasions should not be answered. They are not seriously or sincerely asking. However, um, let's not use that as an excuse because if people do ask us, and even when sometimes they don't, we have to be ready to answer everyone, give a reason for our hope. Fourth observation. There is the possibility of communication between believer and unbeliever. Now you say, well, that's kind of obvious. Why do you have to say something as dumb as that? Well, because it's not been obvious to everybody in the history of apologetics. There's the possibility of communication between believer and unbeliever. This command assumes that there is common ground. Now again, this may not seem to be a terribly profound remark. Our study of the history of apologetics should, however, enable you to realize how important the statement is. This has been a great issue among Christian apologies. Simply put, the problem is that the believer, in one sense, has nothing in common with the unbeliever spiritually, because these things are spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. The believer has the spirit, the unbeliever does not. But that is precisely the area of discussion in which all apologetics must move, giving a reason for the hope. So Raymond again aptly remarks, this injunction expressly assumes the possibility of communication between believer and unbeliever, otherwise the exhortation would be pointless. The precise basis of this possibility of communication constitutes the apologetic problem of the nature of common ground or a point of contact between believer and unbeliever. There is a point of contact, there is a common ground, but the question is, Given what the Bible teaches about the antithesis between believers and unbelievers, what is that common ground? What is that point of contact, right? But fifthly then, the manner of this defense. The New American Standard translates with gentleness and reverence. I actually think uh, the NIV is a little better here, with gentleness and respect. So I would translate it with courtesy and respect. Now let me explain why and wherefore I say that. First of all, the meaning of the phrase. The Greek word prototos means gentleness or courtesy. The lexicon gives the meanings gentleness, humility, courtesy, considerateness. The word phobon, the second word used, Uh, translated respect or reverence, means fear. We get all the phobias from this word phobon in Greek. The question here is, however, whether this word refers to the fear of God or whether it refers to respect for men. It would be easy to argue that Christians should only fear God but never men, 1 Peter 2.17, 3.6, and 14. 
And there certainly is a wrong fear of men. And yet the New Testament actually uses this word to tell us, in some cases, that there's a proper fear of men. There is a respect for men. And so wives are told, for the sake of the divine order, to fear their husbands. And 1 Peter 2, 17 and 18 itself uses this word to refer to uh, fearing your legitimate rulers. I want you to see that passage. Since uh, the idea that we shouldn't fear anybody but God's has a certain plausibility about it. <clears throat> yeah. First Peter 2.17. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. See, we should only fear God. But then uh, it says, servants be submissive to your masters with all respect. And guess what? The word respect there is fear, with all fear. And so, yes, there is a legitimate way in the, with regard to our superiors in the, in the relation, headships relationships that God has appointed in human life, there is a proper way, there is a proper fear for our authorities. Okay? <clears throat> I think one of my listeners would agree that in our day and age, a lot of people ought to have a lot more fear for policemen right, than they have, and treat them and with that kind of fear. They'd be in a lot less trouble, some of them, if they did. Now, so the point is this. <clears throat> Since this reference to fear is coupled with gentleness or courtesy, it appears clear to me that it refers to proper respect for men. Peter is speaking of a gentle and respectful demeanor toward the unsaved when we give them a reason for the hope that is in us. And that brings me to the significance of the phrase. The phrase begins with a strong word meaning but, or yet, but with courtesy and respect. The implication is that if Christians properly set about Christ as Lord, set apart Christ as Lord, in order to defend their faith, they may easily fall into the air of being discourteous, disrespectful towards those with whom they are seeking. They can, they can come across with like a, you idiot attitude. <laughs> um, the reason for this is related to the very nature of a true Christian apologetic. A proper defense of the faith takes a stand uncompromisingly in its faith in Christ and states unhesitatingly that there is no possibility that its position is wrong. We don't start out by saying, well, you could be right, I could be right, let's talk about it. No. That's not the standpoint. We sanctify Christ as Lord, and from the moment we talk to someone, we, are, we assume that there is absolutely no possibility that we're wrong. Right? We come with faith. Uh, that there's not a, and we assume that there's not a shred of intellectual justification for any other position than Christianity. In a word, proper defense of the faith is totally dogmatic. This dogmatic attitude in human affairs is, however, often related to and associated with excessive zeal and pride, which in turn gives rise to discourteous and disrespectful behavior. Peter warns that there is no place for such things in a true defense of the faith. A you-idiot attitude must not be conveyed. Rather, courtesy and respect must be conveyed. Fifth observation. Now, people may still think that we're calling them idiots, no matter how hard we try to treat them with courtesy and respect, but then that's their problem. 
Fifth observation, notwithstanding the dogmatic character of a true defense of the faith, our manner must be one of humble courtesy and respect. The command to defend the faith and evangelize the lost does not exempt us from all the other commands of the Bible or from being sensitive to the dynamics and ethics of interpersonal relations. Okay? We don't get a a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, As long as we're defending the faith, we can act any way we want. No. Right? Well, that brings us to the end of the exposition of that important key passage. And now I just have a couple of words of how we're about we're going to approach the subject this semester of apologetics. And then I'll be done. First of all, I want to talk about the necessity of a biblical approach. Um, The general apologetic position, which will be advocated in these lectures, is that of presuppositionalism. The precise meaning of this word will be clarified later. Cornelius Van Til, the acknowledged father of presuppositionalism, did little exegetically to develop the biblical basis of his position. Even though he claimed that his position was biblical and held the highest view of the authority of the Bible, yet he left the clarification of the exegetical basis of his apologetics to the other members of the Westminster faculty. Thus, it's crucial that these lectures devote themselves to the exegesis and applications of important biblical passages and themes on the subject of apologetics. But there is another and even more basic reason why I speak of the necessity of a biblical approach to Christian apologetics. I believe that the Word of God is and must be authoritative for all of human life, and therefore, of course, for theological epistemology and Christian apologetics. We don't do what some joker did when he started his apologetics course and said, you may shut your Bibles now. True story, I'm told. Uh, The word is sufficient for every endeavor which the Christian ministry presses upon the Christian minister, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And one of these endeavors is certainly the defense of the faith, 1 Peter 3, 15. Hence, it is both terribly foolish and downright illegitimate to fail to seek the source of theological epistemology and Christian apologetics in the Word of God itself. It may be true that this methodology already assumes a certain presuppositional kind of apologetic approach. I think it does. Whether it does or not, however, I am confident that genuine Christians, no matter what their apologetic preferences, will have a difficult time denying the prior propriety of my procedure. In a word, theological epistemology and Christian apologetics are systematic theology. As systematic theology, they must be built on the results of exegetical theology. And that brings me to a second point about the proper approach, the necessity of an historical approach. The necessity of an historical approach. Just as we noted the priority of exegetical theology to systematic theology, so also we noted the logical priority of historical theology to that discipline in which our present subject is encompassed. Remember, the face of theology has two eyes. Exegetical theology and historical theology. Of course, The right eye of exegetical theology is dominant, but there is the other eye, the left eye, of historical theology. 
We also noted then the logical priority of historical theology to that discipline in which our present subject is encompassed. Should not surprise the student, therefore, to discover that I also speak of the necessity of an historical approach to theological epistemology and Christian apologetics. There is much in many ways to be learned about apologetics from church history. An understanding of church history will enable a student to understand the very technical terminology that is thrown around in apologetics. He will be enabled to understand where those he reads are coming from. Also, historical theology, one to the light of Scripture, begin to suggest the broad lines of a proper Christian apologetic. We believe that the Spirit of God has prevented the church from totally departing from a proper defense of the faith. But our interest in historical theology is in a very real and central sense, much less focused on these impressive values than on a very simple, another very simple issue. If the Bible is our answer key for Christian apologetics, it will do us little good if we do not know the proper questions to ask of it. Score keys are of little value if we do not come to them with a list of questions to be answered. So also our Bibles will be of little use to us, at least of little use to us as compared with the use they might be, if we do not come to them with the great issues and questions firmly in our minds, which historical theology has debated. Well, thank you for your attention. In a moment, I'll take your questions. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.